How you guys doing this morning? Yes, I hear some good out there. I love it. I love it. Oh. You know, I'm a Packer fan. So uh, I'm still coming down emotionally from a very exciting and deflating evening. Um, if you are a Packer fan too, and I, I do know we have some 49ers fans in our midst, and uh, I'm pretty sure one of them told me never a doubt, and I was like, ah, I don't know about that, man. But um, it's good to be here with you this morning. If uh, we haven't met, my name is Nate. I'm the lead pastor of the Front Church. Uh, perhaps you're new. Uh, maybe you don't consider yourself particularly religious. Maybe you're from another tradition. Uh, maybe you're watching online and you can't be with us in the house this morning, but you're out there. Uh, we missed you, but we're glad you're out there. Uh, whatever the case, we are creating the front for you because we're inviting as many people as possible to experience Jesus' story. And so we're just honored that you're here and glad that you're with us this morning. We're in this uh, new teaching series called James, True Wisdom. And scripture, speaking of scripture, let me get my remote ready for you guys so I can control my slides. But our scripture is going to be on the screen. But if you want to, you can turn on or open your Bibles to um, James' letter. It's near the back of your Bible. And uh, at the front, uh, we try and talk about the Bible in a way that everyday, ordinary people can understand what it's about. Uh, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but the New Testament was originally written in Koine Greek. And Koine Greek was the street language of, of uh, the street Greek language of the time in the first century. It wasn't the classical language, it wasn't the language of the elite and, and of the super educated, but it was the language of the everyday person. And so we think that just like the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, we need to approach the Bible in a way that everyday, ordinary people can make sense of it. And we know some people are on different spots of their faith journey than others. And so some people might be able to make a little more sense of it than others, but we're really going to try and approach the Bible today in a way that is accessible to everyone this morning. And uh, James is a book, excuse me, I got to grab my water too. But James is a book that invites us into a life of wisdom. You guys know the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is just information accumulation, information acquisition. We have, we have tons of knowledge. We, we, we're accumulating knowledge all the time, whether it's on our news feeds or um, any other number of reasons or the podcast or the audio books we're listening to or the books we're reading. But wisdom is different than knowledge because wisdom doesn't just consume, wisdom actually sits with knowledge and listens. Wisdom stops to listen. And James's letter is, uh, is, is an incredible invitation. It is an opportunity to slow down and to not just consume, 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 but to stop and to listen. And at the beginning of the Bible at the front, we like to go through a book of the Bible. We pick a small book of the Bible and we just read through it. Now, before we read through James chapter 2 this morning, who is James? Well, he's the brother of Jesus. How do you like that? Jesus has an older brother. I don't know, man. I think that's a pretty tough gig. And so I'm pretty sure it's a little tough for, for, for James. Is, 
mom being like, why can't you be more like your older brother, James? And so, but it's amazing how James starts his letter. The very first line of James chapter one, I don't have this on the slide, I'll just read it to you, is James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Like the dude has to have seen something to call his brother, Lord Jesus Messiah. I don't ever refer to my brother, Seth, Lord Seth Messiah, because I know it's definitely not true, right? But James has seen something in his brother. He's experienced something. He was a leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was Jewish. He was killed in 62 AD, meaning that this had to have been written before 62 AD. And another important question we need to, we need to ask before, or an observation we need to make before we jump into the Bible is the Bible was written for us, but not to us. And that's really significant. Um, if we approach the Bible thinking it's written to us, then we think we're the central character. But that's not how the Bible works. In fact, James is writing to a group of Jewish Christians scattered around the world. And this letter is meant to be circulated among these Jewish Christians scattered around the world. And if we recognize it was written to them, but we look at their situation and what he's writing into we can then begin to begin to build a bridge of what that might mean for our lives. And so um, he's writing to a group of Christians. Now we are putting, I put together a list of resources because some of you guys may want to read along or read or, or, or dig a little deeper. And so if you go to the frontchurch.com slash James, it has reading plans as we are doing this teaching series and also some resources for digging a little deeper. There's a quote by the Bible Project, guys, and I think it's a big idea and encapsulates where we're headed. It says, with regard to James, following Jesus is not only about agreeing with theological information, but Jesus' followers become truly wise by living according to Jesus' summary of the Torah. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. A couple other things to keep in mind that we're going to jump right in. James would have a lot to say to us today about our social media um, language, how we conduct ourselves on social media platforms. In fact, he's really going to hit us hard when he hits them hard next week in chapter 3, when he talks about the tongue and taming the tongue. But it's important as we read James to kind of keep how we conduct ourselves, even online, in our mind. Another thing to keep in mind is we're in an election year and things get a little crazy. And James is going to invite us to interact with one another in a new and different way than our world interacts with one another, especially in light of all this. So here we go. We're going to read all of James 2, and then with the rest of our time, I'm just going to make as many observations as we can squeeze in. So you guys ready? James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I guess I'll scoot over here so you can see it on the screen. My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, well, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world 
to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Forever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without food or clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but has nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without your deeds. I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in different directions? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. God, thank you for this scripture, and I pray that you would guide us as we dig into it, and that we would not just be knowledge accumulators, but we would grow in true wisdom in your name. Amen. Man, I love the Bible because this is like a feast. I mean, there's so much here. And the way that we're zooming through James is that we're not giving this an exhaustive treatment. We're reading it all. We're just going to focus in on a few things as time allows. But um, uh, the Bible Project guys called James a beautifully crafted punch in the gut for those who want to follow Jesus. I'm like, oh, that, that hits. That's that's too real. I mean, you could sit, you could read all of James in about 15 or 20 minutes, and you'd be like, oof. Um, but a couple things, a couple themes that I just kind of want to hang in with our time this morning. The first is you'll notice, and you maybe noticed when we were reading James 2, he, he says brothers and sisters a lot. Brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. And I find this, um, I... I he says it 14 times in five chapters. He says it three times in chapter two. And it's almost like when he really wants to get their attention, when he really wants them to focus in on something, he leads with brothers and sisters. Um, I, was, I, I read this quote by this awesome Spanish theologian in the 1400s who was really upset about the colonialization of... Um, of, of, of the new world and how Christians were approaching their mission in the new world. And he had lots of things to say and he did a lot of stuff about it. But one of his quotes 
that I just really love was um, he says, there is no other reason why unbelievers refuse to embrace our faith than the fact that we deny them with our conduct what we offer them with our words. Saying, we are saying that there is a true story of the world, but we are living as if a different story is true. And what's going on in James is that very same thing. They are saying there's a true story about Jesus in the world, but they are living as if a different story is true. So verse, chapter 2, verse 4, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is punchy. Rome had judges. And the judges of Roman society favored the rich. And any, any oppressed Jewish person, or for James's audience, any oppressed Jewish Christian person knew about this reality. They knew that, oh man, if a rich person takes me to court, I'm screwed. I'm done. It doesn't matter how right I am, they're going to win. They knew how the Roman judicial system operated, and it was an operation of favoritism. And so when James is like, you guys, aren't you judges with evil thoughts? He's like, oh. Like, you know those Roman judges over there? You guys are doing that. How? How are they doing that? How are they living that? I imagine that hits and he says, verse 5, dear brothers and sisters. So again, he's, he's using this as a return line. And he's got something to say to them about them there's a way that the world works. There's a way the Roman judges work. There's a way that Roman and Greek society works. But we're going to do things in a new way. We're going to do things as a new community. We're going to do things as a new family. And I think that's why he returns to this line, brothers and sisters again. Because he wants to remind them that in Jesus, they are a new community. They are a new family. They operate in a new way. G James is always unpacking Jesus' teaching. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says this. He says, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is saying, I am putting together a new family. And to make this a little more explicit, I find the writings of Wes Hill very compelling. Wes Hill wrote a book called Washed and Waiting. In this section of the book, he's quoting a theologian, J. Lewis Martin, from his Galatians commentary. Just want to make sure I cite my sources. But listen to this quote. <coughs> Wes Hill says, One of the most surprising discoveries I made is that the New Testament views the church rather than marriage as the primary place where human love is best expressed and experienced. In the Old Testament, marriage was used as a solution to loneliness. Now, however, in the new, the answer to loneliness is not marriage, but rather the new creational community that God is calling into being in Christ, the church marked by mutual love as it is led by the Spirit of Christ. I love that. That's a thinker. You can chew on that one for a while. But what James is inviting them to see, as he says, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, Brothers and sisters, is we're a new family. We operate in a new way. Our community operates differently. And, and 
they need to operate differently in our meetings when we get together, when people are showing favoritism, but also in, in our daily life. Um, I think one of the questions that we sometimes think, we think about the problems in our world, we think about maybe wanting to change them or do something about them, is how do we affect change? Now, I think they probably thought about it too, because I think they're like, I know how to affect change. The people who have position and influence and the rich and the powerful, let's treat them well. And then if they change, then the world will change. But James kind of calls that strategy out on the carpet. He's like, no, 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 no. How do we affect change? Well, the, do, do we campaign? Do we do, uh, do, do, do we get a bunch, do, do, do we get our politics and like affect change through politics? Do we affect change through grabbing power and imposing our morality on others? Is that how we affect change? How do we affect change? James would say without a shadow of a doubt before anything else, he would say how we affect change first, it always begins here. It always begins in the house. Before we think about strategies outside the house and ways we can move outside the house, it always begins in the family. How do we affect change? By, by, by treating one another, not with favoritism. <laughs> by, by operating in a new way, by living as a new family, by living as a community, a new community, and by learning to live in this new reality versus the way that the world wants us to live outside. That is where it begins. Now, the debate is how does it go beyond this place? And Christians are free to debate that. But I want you to know that as Christians freely debate how to affect change outside the community, we cannot lose sight that the primary way we're going to affect change is not through that, but through this. Does that make sense? That's how it happens at the very beginning. Jesus had this little group of followers that just start following him as king and living in this new way, and it didn't look like much. But over the course of time, it became something incredible. So, but anyway, here we go. We've got to transition to the next part. For James's audience, though, a lot of these problems that he's naming at the beginning have to do what, where he's going next. Um, a misunderstanding of what faith actually is. If you would, read with me James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Um, that's, a, that's a mic drop right there. But I think, I think we need to ask ourselves the question, what is faith? Um, Craig Keener defines faith as genuine faith is a reality on which one stakes one's life, not merely passive assent to doctrine. And what James here is doing is James is just unpacking Jesus' teaching again. Jesus says you're going to know a tree by its fruit. One time someone came up to Jesus and they said, what's the most important commandment? What is it? Look at how Jesus responds to this person. He says, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But he doesn't stop there. See, the problem with the community that James is writing to is they stop there. They think that's enough. But Jesus says, and the second is like it. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Someone tries to pin Jesus, what's the most important thing? What's the one most important thing? And Jesus won't let him pin it on one thing. He's like, there's actually not one, there's two. And they go together. Faith and deeds are, and there's an inseparability about them. Because genuine faith affects how we live and interact in our world. Now, James says in verse 19, just to really make this point to his audience, he's like, even the demons believe. God is not just interested in your belief, your assent, your knowledge about him. He is interested in you growing in wisdom. He's interested in, oh, because this is who God is, this has implications for how I live. And I think, what is faith? I think a simple definition of faith, faith is following. It's easy to remember, too. Faith is following. So what is faith in Jesus? Well, faith in Jesus is following Jesus. And James lists a couple examples, because he wants us to make sure that we get this. And we don't have time to dive into those stories. You want some Bible homework? Those would be super fun to read. The story of Abraham, the story of Rahab. But I want, but I want to know in order, because order is important. Both in the story of Abraham and the story of Rahab, there's a confession about who Israel's God is. It's an Old Testament story, which is prior to Jesus. But there's a confession about who Israel's God is. And then there's a declaration in Abraham's story, too, about, uh, of, by God that this person is righteous. They, 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 weren't, they weren't made right because they did something, but... God declares them righteous because they realize who God is and they're banking their lives on it. And then that begins a relationship with God. And then as they have a relationship with God where God has already said, what's made you right with me is your declaration of who I am and you're staking your life on that, that produces a life that begins to look more and more like the God they serve. So what are, what are good works then? Because verse 226 says, faith without deeds is dead. But one thing good works is not is a checklist. Be very cautious about someone who gives you the checklist for what this verse means in detail. Faith without works is dead, so here are all the works you got to do. Uh-uh. Run, 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 run. Run far away as fast as you can. And, and, and also, to be clear here, the minute we think that works are somehow earning like God's favor of us or God's grace of us, we're missing the point too. And we're going to circle back to that in a minute. But why did James go into all this trouble to talk about the inseparability of faith and works and how genuine faith works itself out in the lives of people? Why does James go to such pains to, to, to talk about all this, the second part of chapter two? It's because the first part of chapter two, they're not getting it. They think that all God really cares about is that first command that the guy asked Jesus about. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. This is, love of God is connected to love of people. These two are intertwined. You see that there was a disconnect between the message that they proclaimed to be true about Jesus and the message they were, they were living. It was the Bartolome guy they were denying with their conduct what they were offering with their words. And James will have no part of that. James does have a couple good works in mind. 
One is hospitality. Abraham and Rahab showed hospitality to strangers. He lists them at the end of this chapter, and at the beginning of the chapter, it's all about, you guessed it, showing hospitality to strangers. So there's something about opening our lives to welcome people who we do not know that is an evidence of our faith in Jesus. The second thing that James talks about is mercy. Scott McKnight says, that's what good works means for James, caring for the poor and the marginalized. James may be looking at you and me and asking, how are you caring for the poor? It's a good question. That's for you to think about. But this letter is a beautiful punch in the gut. And it's an invitation not to speed past, but to introspectively think about these things. Am I, are we embodying the message of Jesus that we are proclaiming to be true? Now there was a part of this chapter that moved me, like on like a heart level. And it's so good, you guys. James starts at the very beginning with that, that first line, my dear brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, and not show favoritism. And then verse 9, you know, he goes on to say, um, but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. This idea of favoritism, James 2 starts with an indictment and a reminder. The indictment to his audience is you're showing favoritism. I was reading this little book, which I recommend, which is called uh, James and Galatian, New Testament Everyday Bible Study by Scott McKnight. Scott McKnight says that the word favoritism translates a word. The word favoritism translates a word that suggests lifting up a person's face to see who it is and if they're worthy. I love that image. Think about that for a second. Someone like looking down and someone else coming to them and lifting up their face or uncovering their face and looking at them and deciding, oh, you're worthy or you're not worthy. You guys ever been in moments of shame or humiliation or guilt where you'd rather just hang your head? And then the, James is saying what's happening is in moments of shame and humiliation or moments where the culture says something about your worth or your value or whatever else, he says... What's happening is these people are coming and it's as if God's people, when these folks come into the assembly, are lifting up their heads and looking at them and making a de declaration, you're not worthy. And this is what he says his audience is guilty of. You see, societally, Greeks and Romans didn't care about the poor and they didn't care about the marginalized and... Um, um, there, were, there were all sorts of things um, going on in society and how society conducted themselves and even society's ideas about who's worthy and who's not. But do you see why James has such a serious problem with favoritism? Because it's antithetical to Jesus' very message. You know what Jesus, you know what Jesus doesn't do? With our heads lowered, shame guilt, humiliation. Jesus doesn't come up to us and lift our heads and say, you didn't cut it. Not good enough for me. No. Jesus, in our shame, in our humiliation, in our guilt, 
when we've fallen short, when society says all sorts of things that are true about us, Jesus comes and he lifts our heads. He says, I came for you and you are worth my love. You are worth my love. Doesn't matter what you bring, doesn't matter what they say, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter your past, doesn't matter your present, doesn't even matter what your future looks like. You are worth my love. And this is, the, this is how Jesus operates. And they're operating completely different. And so James will have no part of it. And I love this last little part here. It's how he starts chapter 2. Believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. The word, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, the phrase glorious Lord was reserved for God, for Jewish people. So for James here to say believers and our glorious Lord Jesus the Messiah is a declaration who God is. What is God like? God looks like Jesus. Who is God? God is Jesus. He's reminding them about who Jesus is, what Jesus has come to do for them, and he's inviting them to embody that same reality with one another. He's at work in a people to put them together so that they remember and realize their new family that relates to one another in a new community and a new way. And then he puts that family together to be an extension of blessing to our world. And that's what he's about. And that's why he has these harsh words, but that's why he's inviting us to think, okay, how do you treat the strangers in your assemblies? How do you treat the strangers in your lives? How do you interact with your political adversaries? How do you interact with people you don't necessarily like or want to hang out with? Are you, are you remembering the way that Jesus, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, operates? Which is not to lift our heads and say, no, nope, but it's to lift our heads and to speak our value and to say, I came for you. Jesus, I pray we would remember how you operate, how you've come for us. And I pray that your spirit would massage that into our lives as individuals, into our life as a community. And that we would, with our lives, proclaim the message that we are saying is true with our mouths. That, that as you work in us, there will be less and less and less of a disconnect between the, the, mess, the story our lives are telling is true with the story we are saying is true of you. Do that work in us. You are the one who has to do the work in us. And I pray you would. In your name, amen.